Lucky number two. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Library Game. I'm Lacey. And I'm Amy. And we are your guides in this eclectically indecisive book club. If you're new to The Library Game, this is simply just a random method that we use to choose your next read. All we do is we assign numbers to the rows section shelf and books at our local library, and we choose random numbers to guide us to what our next book will be. For this episode, we use the RSSB row section shelf book coordinates of 25, 4, 2, and 7. And that led us to Sister North, a novel by Jim Kokoris. I hope I'm saying his name correctly because as with every other book that we've read so far in the library game, I don't know who this is. I also do not know who this is. So the first thing we do is the thing you're not supposed to do where we judge the book by its cover. Let's do it. Okay, so this book shows us a uh, shot of what looks like a windowsill with a tiny little statuette of a nun with her hands in prayer set onto the windowsill. The window looks out onto what looks like some trees. And then now that I look at it beyond that, it kind of goes into white. It's all very white, a little bit of green background. I think we see some water in it, but the sky and whatever's beyond the trees all kind of goes into this white, like it's too bright to really tell. But I think there's some water there. Sister North is in black. There's down towards the bottom, right above the author's name. And something that Lacey noticed at the library, and I probably wouldn't have noticed this at all, the base of this little nun statuette that is kind of the center focal point of this picture, there's a white little base to it, and it says, Go, Sister. And that's... So it's kind of like a like a novelty looking thing. Yeah, it's not a caricature of a nun. You know what I mean? There's no like really exaggerated features to it or anything like that. It's very basic. It's the black uh, habit with the white around the face on the inside of the hood that's pulled up. And like I said, her hands are in prayer. She's got a rosary on her belt. Under the author's name, it says author of The Rich Part of Life, another book that I have not heard of. So based on that, what's your guess about what this book's about? So I, at first, was thinking probably a very serious, contemplative, sad thing. But when you pointed out Go Sister across the bottom of this thing, I'm, I kind of started to backtrack. I'm going to say that this is a story about a girl who grew up in an orphanage run by nuns and eventually becomes one herself. Like she's like a fledgling nun, maybe. A nunette. <laughs> a nunette. A nunling. <laughs> There's probably a real word for oh them, my huh? God. Yeah, I mean, you know, a little sister. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I like Nunling. Nunling. Actually, I like that too. It speaks to my Star Wars heart because the Jedi, when they're little kids in the temple, they're called younglings. And so little Nunling. Okay. 
Anyway, so with the ghost sister, I'm thinking that it's probably going to be this like semi-serious story with these silly like episodic things that happen in this woman's kind of coming of age and coming into the nunneriness of her life. That's what I'm going to say. All right. I went a different direction. So my guess is that there's a nun, the sister North. She's an adult. Just a regular old gal, regular nun, doing her nunny things. Uh, but she finds herself in the middle of some kind of like big social moment, right? So kind of like Forrest Gump style. Oh, so like society social. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then she kind of becomes like a viral sensation. <laughs> like sister act? Bigger. Yeah. Like Forrest Gump. Like, okay. like that. Like people know who she is and gravitate toward her. And she finds herself becoming kind of a celebrity nun. And so she's really uncomfortable with that at first. But then the, the you know weird, exciting things happen throughout. But at the end, she realizes that now she has this power for like positive social change. And she's you know, like a Greta Thunberg kind of person. Interesting. She's Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act. Although it occurs to me that Whoopi Goldberg pretended to be a nun in that movie. Yeah, this is a real a real nun. Real like I married God kind of person. All right. So now I'm really excited to hear what <laughs> how we're both so wrong. All right, let's see here. Um Sam was an indifferent Chicago lawyer, content to drift through life on his good looks and his wife's money until a violent incident shatters his world. Newly addicted to watching Sister North, a nun with a popular TV show, Sam embarks oh. on a trip to Lake Eagleton, Wisconsin to see the wise nun personally, seeking forgiveness and spiritual guidance. When he arrives, he discovers that he has been watching reruns. Sister North has vanished and all sorts of rumors abound. <laughs> I'm in. You've got me. <laughs> I had to. I don't know what it is, but I am hooked. I am a fish. I'm on the line. Reel me in. Let's go. <laughs> As he waits, wondering if the elusive nun will ever return, he unexpectedly falls in love with Meg, a reclusive waitress at the local restaurant. This was not the answer that he was searching for. Yet, for the first time in his life, his feelings are genuine. Jim Kokoris, the author of the beloved novel, The Rich Part of Life, sensitively and compassionately portrays a remarkable story of forgiveness and hope. Undeniably powerful, Sister North is a novel that takes a poignant and humorous look at what passes for faith and love in the 21st century. And then back just has picture of the author. Looks like a dude. Yeah, he looks like Bob Saget. <laughs> he does look a little bit like Bob Saget. I feel like I wrote the prequel to this book. Like that was. <laughs> you did. You definitely did. <laughs> Sister North, the beginning. <laughs> I um, was just way off. I didn't touch on it at all. That's unfortunate. I'm a little sad that this isn't about Sister North, though. Yeah. I got all excited about this. And maybe that's what we get for judging a book by its cover, right? You get your idea for a story in mind. And then like, I want to read the stories that you and I came up with. <laughs> I mean, I, I got really excited about this idea of, you know, what happened to Sister North. But I get the vibe that like, that's just the background. Yeah. I mean, I hope. It said somewhere humorous, but I don't know if that's humorous in the way that some of the other books we've read said they were humorous, <laughs> but like, weren't. 
<laughs> you ever wonder that maybe you and I just have like a really shitty sense of humor? I mean, I think I'm hilarious, yeah. but you're probably <laughs> right. So there's stuff in here that I think that I will like. I don't know what tickles me so much about like this TV personality nun has just suddenly disappeared. Is she going to come back as Robin Williams? You know, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It just it made me think of Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) (laughs) My brain is just kind of firing in different directions right now. I think. I think I got really excited about one idea and now there's like four different ideas for one title here that like I I don't know what to do anymore. (laughs) I think there's potential, but I'm nervous that it's going to be a lot of like woo woo Jesus. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It it was like it's a a touching story about faith or whatever. Yeah, I don't know about that. A humorous look at what passes for faith and love in the 21st century. Okay, okay. I have high hopes, actually. Well, there's only one way to find out if Robin Williams is in this book, and that's to read it. Fingers fucking crossed. (laughs) Let's do it. Okay, so we read the book, uh, but before we get into any of the you know details, we would be doing you a disservice if we didn't give you the little mini saga that was the process of just getting this book into our eye holes, uh, <laughs> like from the library to us. So typically what we do when we find our book is we grab it and then I immediately jump on the Libby app, which if anybody is unaware of it, Libby is a great like free app for audiobooks. So I jump on there. It's not on there. So then I jump over to Audible, my last resort, when I really want to listen to a book rather than physically read it. Didn't exist there either. So I thought, okay, well, just like the housing lark, we had to share the book. And it also just so happened that there was only one copy of this book at the library, just like with the housing lark. So then, Lacey, what happens as we go to check the book out? So typically I'm bringing my kids. So we have a big stack of books that the kids are checking out plus the book that we're going to read. So I put all the books on the scanner. It's one of those, you know, fancy new scanners where you just put a big pile of books and it reads the little whatever, the little thing that they put inside the cover and checks them all out at once. So I put all the books on the thing and it checks out all the kids' books, but then it's like, "Mm, I don't know what this one is. So I tried it again. I thought maybe I positioned it wrong or something and it still didn't show up. So I walked over to the librarian and I was like, hey, it doesn't want to check this out. And I figured it was like somebody didn't check it in right. So it wasn't logged that it was back or something. (laughs) And so she scans it, gets a weird look on her face. Then she starts typing numbers in. Gets a real weird look on her face and she's like, uh, (laughs) I think she even asked, where did I get this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And she, she's like, hold on, I gotta go get somebody else. So she goes and finds another librarian. It takes a while, like, it takes long enough that I walk away from the desk as they're trying to figure out what this book is, where did it come from, and why is it not showing that it exists? The point being, it took inordinately long for the library to figure out what is this book? Does it actually exist? And to the point that I... I was very seriously contemplating Googling it, even though I didn't want to give a book away, just to be like, is this real? Like, did somebody just plant this here? 
Anyway, though, eventually they figured it out. They checked it out to us. But the point of telling that story is because it is, in my opinion, extremely appropriate for what this book ended up really being. <laughs> yeah, just say a constant, what even is going on here? And does this freaking nun even exist? Yeah. I also want to say, too, that... uh Describing what happens in this book, I don't feel like is going to be an accurate portrayal of what it's like to read this book, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would agree with that. So this probably gives away like my feelings about the book in general, but I think I would like to say at this point, if you did not read along and you think maybe possibly this is something I'd like to read, I think you should stop listening and go read it before you listen to the rest of this. <laughs> so hopefully you listen to me. If not, you know, be a rebel, but you're missing out, I think. You can't tell me what to do. You're not my real mom. <laughs> so the book starts out. Our main character is Sam. And the very first sentence of this book tells you what you are in for. Do you remember the first sentence? Nine months after yeah. his divorce, Sam stopped wearing underwear. So I made <laughs> I made myself a note with that to compare it to two things. One, to our last book where our main character didn't know how to human and just thought you wear clothes, you get dirty, <laughs> you throw them away, you get new clothes, right? And the other thing that it made me think of was my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the sense of I don't know how to human, but more in the sense of Sam, which is just, well, I can't be bothered to do that, so I'm just going <laughs> to buy. And I think that's what later on he goes into explaining a little bit more. And he's like, I, I was buying new underwear. And then I was just like, why am I doing this? Why not just not wear underwear? And I was like, that's Ian's next step if I've ever heard of one. So. So why is Sam choosing not to wear underwear? Well, he, on paper, prior to the book starting, so the book starts and Sam is already like well into a, a spiral, right? But prior to that, on paper, Sam was like living the good life. You know, he's a good looking guy. He has an unattractive but rich wife, which was his choice. That's what he wanted. Yeah, the rich part came before the attraction part for him. Uh, so he works with her dad. He's a lawyer and works at like some fancy law firm with her dad. They've got a big house. He just kind of does what he wants, living the good life, right? But he's miserable in that life. Has no meaning. Doesn't like her. I think he cheats on her yeah. often. Basically, he aspires to be kind of like a trophy husband in a way. <laughs> yeah. In the sense that like he has no ambition of his own. He just wants to skate by with the bare minimum effort. Yeah. He's doing pretty good by those standards, I guess. And then I think his wife like gets in shape or something, right? And then she's like, no, I'm going to I'm going to ditch the dead weight here. The classic story of a woman gets a moat of self-esteem and realizes that <laughs> she's just been enabling some douchebag. So she divorces him prior to the opening of the book. So he is at this point living in a motel because he had helped the owner through like some shady legal issues and the owner was like, you can stay for free. It's like it's like a pay by the hour mm -hmm. shady motel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's opened his own law practice where he just helps scummy people. Kind of like a ambulance chaser vibe, you know? Yeah. Not even that because that requires some sense of like gumption on his part. And he's like, 
I think he does a lot of divorces. Like he he helps people, you know, take them for all they're worth kind of thing. Oh my God. I just remembered one of his clients who like had been arrested several times <laughs> for breaking into other people's homes and <laughs> masturbating in their showers. <laughs> I forgot. So there's that too. <laughs> yeah. And he's trying to talk to the guy about it. And he's like, well, I was just confused. Nah, you've done this many times. Well, I think and at like one point he was like, well, that time I wasn't in the shower. <laughs> it's different. So, and I do think that you get a sense of the comedy of this story right from the get-go. Yes. I mean, like we said, like with the first line, I stopped wearing underwear, the way he interacts with his clients and stuff. And I did make myself a note here too about how, not to the point of absurdity, but how silly. Yeah the humor is in this to contrast with what, you know, kind of some of the drama and the more emotional stuff that happens later on. But here is where I I have to say that I started in his law practice where he has a secretary named Maureen. This is when I started to imagine Sam as the actor Jason Bateman. Oh. Uh, Just because I felt like the way Sam talks in the story is very similar to the way Jason Bateman talks like in comedies. You know what I mean? And he has kind of that cocky vibe that Sam has. Yeah, that cocky, kind of fast-talking, sarcastic, but with this weird, like, slight self-deprecation here and there. And so it's just enough snark and douchebaggery (laughs) to, like, almost make you hate him, but then just enough of everything else to make you go, like, well, I guess you're just another human being, aren't you? Yeah. I don't think that Jason Bateman is a good physical representation, but, like... (laughs) (laughs) everyone's supposed to be just naturally attracted to Sam. I'm sure there are people out there that are attracted to Jason Bateman. Amy clearly is not attracted to Jason Bateman. (laughs) He's he's fine. I feel like I've lost the thread here. The point (laughs) is that if, if I had the audiobook of this story and I got to choose who voiced the characters, Jason Bateman would voice Sam. I like that. I could see that. Okay, so Jason Bateman is in <laughs> in the seedy motel. <laughs> He's got his crappy law practice, and he is not doing well. He doesn't care about his work. He just gets really drunk all the time. He'll mm-hmm. maybe roll into the office. Maureen will call him, and she she's very young. He hired her because she's really pretty and young. But she takes her job pretty seriously. She takes her job about as seriously as a really dumb person can. Well, yes. Like, I, yes. like, I don't mean to call Maureen dumb, but she's this very naive. Yeah. Very. But she tries. Oh, yeah. And she she's serious, but yeah. you can't take her seriously. So he's spiraling, not doing very well. He's got this secretary and he's in his office one day and the secretary's like, I think a a guy shows up and kind of like barges in and he's laying on the floor at the point that the guy barges in and Maureen's like, oh, I need to, I'm so sorry. And he's like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We'll talk to him. So this guy is very upset and he's talking about uh, his divorce and his, his wife, I think again, took him for all he's got kind of thing. Right. And he's asking questions and Sam doesn't really know who the guy is or what he's talking about, but he's putting in the minimal amount of effort into just having this conversation that he can. And what it ends up happening is he realizes that this guy was on the other end of a divorce that Sam helped another lawyer uh, with the wife. And the guy is extremely upset. He pulls out a gun and he tells Sam that he's already killed the other lawyer. 
So he's now here ostensibly to kill Sam. So Sam's freaking out and this guy's, you know, unhinged. And this, I feel like I was really confused a little bit about the order of events, but something happens where the guy goes to shoot Sam and he misses and instead he shoots Maureen and Maureen dies. There's a moment, and I can't remember if it happened before or after that, where the guy asks Sam, do you believe in God? I was about to say Sam says yes, but I think he says no. Or maybe he says yes, but he's lying. Yeah, I think what happens is that he holds the gun at Sam, does all that, and then I think, doesn't like Maureen come in and that causes him to turn or something as he goes to shoot? And I think it's intentionally a bit vague because I think Sam passes out. The story fades to black and we come back like the next day or something. And my note for this part was, what the fuck? This vibe transition gives me whiplash because like we went from snappy one liner back and forth, very much like a one two punch kind of setup to conversations and stuff, which is enjoyable. I will say nothing about the characters or how they interact in this story seems particularly realistic to me. Yeah. But it's okay because that's just the style of the story. Yeah. You know, this isn't a story that I feel like is going for believable characters and events and interactions and things like that. I have some thoughts about this, but I want to talk about it later. Okay. So this causes him to spiral far worse. All he does is drink at the hotel. So he's at the hotel. He'll walk across the street to get more beer and that's it. Yeah, he's given up on his practice and everything. He watches TV to escape essentially and to to quiet his brain. So I think he starts out and he's, he'll watch like uh, sports stuff for a while. And then he gets really into the History Channel for a little while. Yeah. And one night, it's like his remote stops working. And for him, that's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? The remote's not working. And he gets stuck on this public access-y type channel where there's a nun, which it kind of reminded me of Miss Cleo. You know, people would call in and she would give advice. (laughs) And aired late at night. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he gets stuck on this channel and then it just catches, you know, his interest and he becomes completely obsessed with Sister North. Oh, and I forgot. So Maureen tried very hard to like bring Sam out of his funk and she was always buying him gifts or like food that she thought would be good for him or whatever. And one of the gifts she got was- Tchotchkes. Yeah. One of the gifts she got him was a poster of a nun riding a bike and it said, go sister, go. And I think it actually was Sister North in the poster. Yeah. So he connects that kind of with Maureen and maybe even not fully consciously connects it, but- He zones in on Sister North. He knows when she comes on every night and he tries to call in every night, but he never gets through. Not to Sister North. He gets through to somebody. Yes. A time or two. Yes. And then he's put on hold basically until the show ends. And then eventually he's just like, screw this. I'm just going to go find her. I'm going to go see where she is and meet her. So he gets in his car and he heads to Wisconsin. Wisconsin. (laughs) Where... uh, (laughs) Where Sister was from, a small town in Wisconsin on a lake. On his way there, he stops at a gas station. And we have an instance of hashtag shit women don't do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He comes out of the gas station and a guy climbs in his car and he's like, hey, are you so-and-so? And I think he's just like, yeah. No, I think he's like, no. And the guy's like, oh, you're not my rideshare or Uber or whatever. He's like, no. 
And he goes, well, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going east or something. He's like, okay. I think the idea is that Sam is in such a weird headspace where he's just like, fuck it, okay. And so he just goes with it. But again, shit women don't do. You don't just let some random dude get in your car and ride along with you for no reason. I really enjoyed this scene, though, because (laughs) they're riding along and Sam's like, what am I doing? I just picked up a hitchhiker. This could be a crazy person, a murderer. Like he's thinking in his head, but then they're just having a conversation. And the guy that he picks up, his name's Willie, starts talking about getting knifed. (laughs) And he just keeps throwing in comments about, oh, I could get knifed. And they're both in this very (laughs) awkward, like, are you going to murder me? Are you going to murder me? (laughs) (laughs) And again, I just, there were so many points, especially at the very beginning of this book that I don't know if I've ever laughed out loud as much as I did at this book. I would have to put it down because I couldn't stop laughing and then go back to it. (laughs) Early on, I think I had a couple very brief moments where like my brain wouldn't do that whole suspension of disbelief or whatever. And I got a little frustrated with how kind of campy it Mm. was, maybe. But then after I was just like, okay, this is fine. I'm going to treat this like a sitcom. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. And so once my brain was able to switch over to that, I really did start to enjoy the comedy of it a bit more. Just for continuity's sake, I do also have a actor in mind for <laughs> Luis Guzman. Yep, I see that. Again, it's kind of just in the way that he talks. He kind of speaks in these half sentences. It's almost like an aggressive mumble, maybe. <laughs> He's very opinionated, but he has nothing to back up his opinions, I feel like. He has a lot of these weird knowledge bases where you're just like, Okay, hold up, Willie. Where did that come from? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and also he's a magician. Yeah, that's his whole plan is he's (laughs) hitchhiking to get to Minnesota so that he can start his new career as a children's party magician. Which again, doesn't raise any red flags for anybody (laughs) whatsoever. You know, random guy that just jumps in your car at a gas station in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I'm a kid's magician. Sure. I'm sorry, aspiring. I haven't even started doing that yet. (laughs) (laughs) But I've been practicing a lot. So they go, they head up to the lake. Now, hold on, hold on. They stop at a motel because it gets to be late. And this is, again, shit that women don't do. This is what (laughs) I wrote down. Picking up a hitchhiker and letting him sleep in your car, shit women don't do. Yeah, (laughs) I forgot about that too. Yeah, it gets to be nighttime. I think they stop at a diner and eat and then they stop at this motel. I think Willie doesn't really have much money, but Sam doesn't want to sleep in the same room as him. So Sam gets a hotel room because Sam also has to watch Sister North. Like it's nighttime. He has to watch her. And so like he gets the hotel room and he lets Willie sleep in his car. And then he goes through his whole nighttime ritual of watching Sister North and trying to call in and being told to be put on hold. And there's a long wait. And then it starts pouring down rain. And he gets this idea in his head that Willie is really cold. Uh, He's also very drunk. Yeah, yeah. well, of course, because he's always super drunk. But so he's like, I didn't even give him a blanket or a pillow. I should probably do that. So he goes out in the rain, opens the car door, and like Willie is asleep in the back seat or something. And he goes to like put the blanket over Willie and Willie wakes up and freaks out (laughs) thinking that Sam is doing something creepy to him. And so he attacks and like kicks and pushes him away or something. And... Sam goes back inside, dripping wet, feeling like a dummy, positively sure that Willie's going to steal his car now, (laughs) and falls asleep in his drunken stupor. 
And then I think the next day he wakes up and the car is gone. Yeah. And the, I can't remember the exact way that it happens, but Willie comes back and he's got coffee yeah. or something. He's like, I thought I'd get us coffee to apologize you know, for being so aggressive against USA. And Sam's like, well, you know, it does kind of make sense. I woke you up laying on top of you. <laughs> so they had the awkward knife conversation the day before. And then they have the awkward, I didn't mean anything by that uh, the next day. How do they live with this horrible, horrible social awkwardness? <laughs> Even I'm thinking that. Uh, well, somehow they find it in them to just continue their journey together. So then they end up at the lake. And they meet a whole cast of characters there. So they, uh, I think they find a diner is the first thing. And then Sam is kind of confused. He's like, I'm here. What am I doing here? What am I planning on doing? I'm going to go see this nun. What the hell am I supposed to say to her? I don't even know what I want to say to her. Do they stop and look at the statue first and then go into the diner? Maybe. So they get there and they find that there is a large statue of the nun. Yeah. And they have this whole conversation with a guy who's kind of, I think he's planting flowers around her feet. And I have a quote from this part I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> the guy says, the statue sways in the wind. And then he, he pushes on it to like demonstrate and it doesn't move. And he goes, well, it moved last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is also a point, I can't remember the context of when this happens, but at some point, Sam has a flashback of his dad. So his dad was, I think, a drug addict and took him fishing once. <laughs> and in the story he's talking about where his dad took him fishing, his dad tells him that he's accepted Jesus and that things are going to be different now <laughs> because he's accepted yes. Jesus and life is going to be different. And then he just stands up in the boat, says, Tell your mom I'll be back in a few days. And he dives off into the water and leaves. <laughs> Swims away. Yeah. I was like, is he about to start a cult? What's happening? Yeah, because he kind of becomes something of like a hippie pastor. Yeah, he's not full-blown cult leader, but he's definitely <laughs> like a I'm a cool guy pastor. <laughs> I'm just laughing at my notes because half of my notes on this book start with, oh my God, because it's like I was just <laughs> laughing so hard as I was writing them. So the next set of notes that I have are about when they go in the diner. So they go in, they meet the owner of the diner. And then I think he sits down in a booth, but it's like somebody's booth. It's Lewis's booth. And he has this whole interaction with this guy about like, this is where I sit. And they, I think tempers flare a little bit. But the thing that I loved about this is that he's talking about this big guy at the diner and this big strange dude. And it goes on for, I think, three pages where he's talking about interacting with this big guy. And doesn't mention until three pages in that the big guy is wearing a muumuu. <laughs> yeah, he's this big, huge guy. Uh, I think he's later described as like Viking-esque in the sense that like he has <laughs> big, long beard and longer hair and all this stuff. But yeah, he wears a muumuu. <laughs> and he has flowers. So at the diner, he's drinking a lot. This girl comes in named Meg to be a waitress. And I don't know if we find out here or later on, but Lewis, the big guy in the Moo Moo, is there with flowers for Meg. And she's basically like, stop stalking me. You're not allowed to bring me flowers anymore. <laughs> it all seems to be kind of happening in the background because the focus for Sam is I'm just going to get blackout drunk because I don't know why I'm here. What have I done? Blah, 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 blah. Right. He does get blackout drunk to the point where like he completely passes out and he wakes up the next day 
day in a pretty nice, if sparsely decorated room and come to find out that Willie and Lewis, the big guy in the Moo Moo, <laughs> decided to take Sam to Lewis's bed and breakfast to sleep off his drunken stupor. And so when he wakes up, once again, Willie's not there, his car's not there, but he finds out that there's a trolley that goes all around the town and just so happens to go up to Sister North's house that is kind of back in the woods off of this lake that the town is kind of built around. And I think it's important to note that all that's happening in this town is the fact that the nun is there. Yeah, the town has completely centered its business. Yeah, it's survival, really. Yeah, it's economy and survival around nun tourism. <laughs> People like Sam who are seeking out Sister North for some sort of miracle or divine advice or, you know, whatever. So he gets on the trolley and here I have a couple of notes. So the trolley driver's name is Tony and he kind of has this little spiel that he goes on. And there's this couple that's on the trolley too. And so there's this little exchange where the trolley driver Tony says, welcome then to the lake of many moods, which he's referring to the lake that the town's by. And the husband, who we soon find out is named Patrick, says, that's a strange moniker. Why is it called that? And Tony says, it's a moody lake. Again, just kind of that like little one-two punch. I'm going to set you up for just a really dumb, not joke answer, but it's still funny. As they're going, they're like, okay, next stop, we're going to go up and see the nun, or we're going to go up to her house but I'll let you all know she's not there. And so my favorite quote is an exchange between Tony and Sam. And I think for me, I couldn't pick just one quote or line or anything like that because all the best stuff is this kind of back and forth. Yeah. And I think it's required. And so while this might not be necessarily the absolute funniest or anything like that in the story, I feel like it really encompasses the kind of humor in this book. So Tony says, she's not here technically not here. And Sam says, what do you mean technically, Tony? Well, she's here in spirit. And <laughs> Sam says, what about the rest of her? And he goes, that part's gone. <laughs> Again, it's just not quite to complete absurdity, but incredibly silly. I think I have a quote that must have happened right after that, that I wrote down. So it says, okay. she'll return. She always does. Besides, her presence is everywhere. The trees, the lake, the clouds, Monticello. Her physical presence isn't really necessary. She has a website. <laughs> she has a website was a moment that I had to put it down and just laugh. But yeah, so then I think they start to drive up to the house, but then they get stuck or something. I think he gets off the trolley. I think he can't handle the other people on the trolley, and he's not ready to like be associated with people who are open to saying, I am only here to go talk to them. He's still kind of playing off the, oh no, the nun? No, I'm not, I'm not here for that. What do you, what do you even mean? That's, I'm just, I'm just here for the lake. <laughs> so he finds out that she's not there. And has this, what should I do? What am I going to do? And he decides to just kind of hang out because everybody keeps telling him she'll be back. I'm not sure when, but she'll be back. We get into the meat of this story is all the people waiting around for the nun, mm -hmm. basically, and the various reasons why they're there and, you know, just Sam's encounters with each of them. Oh, and one thing that we haven't mentioned is Sam keeps like a notebook with him. And he's constantly jotting down thoughts. And the things that he jots down are really, like, he does not think highly of himself. He does not find himself to be a good person or, like, a worthwhile person. He's doing pros and cons about himself. Yeah. His pros are things like 
Physically fit. Yeah. You know, attractive. And then his cons are things like bad at making lists. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then just like judgmental or his negative interpretations of himself are very self-reflective in the sense that like, yes, these are things that a person can list out and try to prove on. But they're written in a way where it's just like, oh, man, that was harsh. Yeah. So I think that's important. And it's important to like his headspace as he's entering this place. So he's gone through some really horrible trauma. His life was Mm -hmm. already in a shambles prior to that. So he's kind of, I don't know what I am or who I am. I don't like who I am. I don't know what I'm doing here. And when this woman, this little old lady asks me, what Mm -hmm. do I want from her? I don't know the answer. So he's kind of trying to come up with why am I here throughout all this? So I feel like I don't know. That's important to note as we go through, because I think that's the main story. And he explores a lot of that through his interactions with the other people that are there waiting for her and why they're there. So like, for example, Mm -hmm. he meets a lady named Dot, who not only has already met Sister North, but is actually one of the people who claims to quote unquote know her a lot more than some of the other people. And she has overcome cancer, but now she smokes. She has this tiny little dog. She dresses provocatively. And she is very forward to the point where later on, I'm like, are there going to be consequences for this woman's (laughs) behavior at all? And then the husband and wife that were on the trolley, he later learns about them. It's Patrick and Lila who are there. Patrick doesn't really believe in the sense that like a lot of the people who come to see Sister North But their son has gone missing and they, as fairly wealthy ranchers, I believe, they've hired investigators and they've, you know, done all this stuff. And this is an adult son who, you know, has his own job in life and all this, but has just kind of gone off the grid, I guess. And they're at a point in their life where, in their search, where, you know, Patrick is is ready to say, like, I'm pretty sure our son is dead. But Lila has, you know, too much faith and she really, you know, it's like that kind of concept where like when you find something that might give you hope, you cling to it like crazy. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where Lila is in it. And that she's like, she's just absolutely sure that as soon as they're able to talk to Sister North, they'll have an answer or they'll have something that will help them. And she's not ready to give up this idea that their son's alive. And then there's other people that are far more background that are there for, you know, things like burn victims or people with, you know, severe diseases and deformities and, you know, things like that. The kind of stuff that you imagine very charismatic type faith healer type people would attract. But Sister North doesn't have that charismatic healer vibe. She has a more genuine vibe to her. At least that's how Sam feels about her. And in all of this, the way people talk about and kind of shirk off the idea of like, oh yeah, of course she's coming back. She'll be right back. I promise. Like the whole time I'm just sitting here thinking, is this an entire town in on a hoax? (laughs) Yeah. And just like grifting these people, you know, just like, yeah, she'll be back. She'll be back. She'll be back. And like, they're so committed to the bit that people will stay for a while eat in the only restaurant in the town, shop in the only clothing store in the town, which is Sister North themed, uh, shop at the bait shop, the only bait shop in the town. The bait shop also has clothes. That's true. The only <laughs> the only clothes available in this town are religious clothes that are have crosses all over them or Sister North related or animals with human dicks. 
which you can yes. buy at the bait shop. <laughs> Those are the yeah. only clothing options. Yeah, the bait shop, which is owned by Tony, the trolley driver. And I think <laughs> when we get to the part of the book where we visit Tony's bait shop, I'm like, I hate Tony. <laughs> Tony's vile and he's grumpy all the time. And he's just kind of a dick. <laughs> I don't like him. That is my second to last note is I hate Tony. <laughs> I like that your favorite quote is Tony, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it it happened before we got to the bait shop, though. <laughs> Did I also I have so many quotes, Amy. So I don't even know who said this. It might be Tony. <laughs> it says, even met one of those scientists, you know, from that religion that worships Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple things that happen while we're waiting for Sister North. So this town is around this lake and there's some kind of conversation about the like the topographical features of the area. Basically storms will like get into kind of the basin, I guess, where this this town and the lake is and it kind of just like settles there for a while until it will spin itself out and so they happen to have a tornado. And so then the, the whole town is kind of getting together about cleaning up and stuff but a certain thing in the town goes missing it's the statue the giant statue that's supposed to be a bronze heavy statue is suddenly a solid bronze statue yeah it's just the feet that are left on the pedestal and there's like the local quote-unquote crazy guy who's like i saw her she was flying home but like when this guy is saying this, he's saying it like, I saw Sister North. She was flying. I saw her in the sky. <laughs> she went up to heaven or something like that. And later on, come to find out that this guy was talking about the statue. <laughs> he saw the statue flying through the air. And so then there's like this whole organized town search of the lake for the statue. So everybody's got boats and they're like, okay, get your chains out. We're going to troll the lake to try to find it and blah, 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 blah. And even Lewis, who has apparently a very beautiful, like, all wood boat. Lewis, who, by the way, I think we mentioned obsessed with Meg, the waitress, also obsessed with his late mother <laughs> and doesn't know how to run the bed and breakfast. Well, first of all, the bed and breakfast doesn't have breakfast. <laughs> it has Pop-Tarts sometimes. Well, no, no. Yeah, yeah well, that's <laughs> that's the thing is that, like, at some point after they've been there for a bit, he's like... I'll start serving breakfast and the next morning there's a box of Pop-Tarts on the table <laughs> and a note that says, you're welcome. And then like he will randomly bring Sam a watermelon or yeah. random bits of fruit or whatever. But he's constantly, how do I make money or I'm going to lose everything? And I imagine Lewis. All right. This one's a bit of a, a deeper. Well, maybe not a deeper pool. Do you know who Steve Agee is? Oh, it sounds familiar. I know. His name sounds way more familiar. I looked him up because I couldn't remember his name. And then I looked up who I was thinking of and I was like, oh, that's his name. And then I was looking at his other credits and I was like, how do I know your name when the only thing I can actually think of you in is Outside Dave from New Girl? The oh. homeless guy. Did you watch New Girl? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I imagined Outside Dave as <laughs> as Lewis. Not quite big enough to be Lewis, but that like unkempt, bearded very weird, slightly not all there in the head, which I feel like everybody in this story is kind yeah. of like that. 
but he's out there with his boat. Eventually, Lewis does confide in Sam. Oh, that's another thing is everyone thinks that Sam is a priest or an ex-priest who's there because apparently a lot of really depressed priests will come to try to visit Sister North and then kill themselves. Which is presented in such a funny way because everyone's constantly trying to like give confession to Sam, but like it's also like a super morbid thing. Oh yeah, priests come here all the time to kill themselves. I'm like, holy shit. (laughs) But so there's that whole thing, and because of this constantly, even though Sam is always saying like I'm not a priest, I've never been a priest. uh, Lewis does confide in Sam that he was the one that took the town's money to have this statue commissioned. And he admits that while he told the town that it was solid bronze, when he went to actually commission the statue, he found out that that was insanely expensive, uh, more money than what they had raised as a town to commission the statue. So what he did is he had the feet cast in solid bronze and the rest of the statue was hollow and made out of something else. Like aluminum or something? Yeah, a very light metal. And he pocketed the difference for himself. And he's like, what do I do? What kind of legal trouble would someone be facing if they had done this? A really obvious attempt to be like, I know someone who did this thing. How much trouble would they be in? And Sam is just like, uh, uh, they would be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> like, You should probably give the money back. But yeah, so they're searching the lake for this statue. They don't find it. Meanwhile, Sam also gets to know Meg. Yeah, helping with the search for the statue, I feel like is kind of a turning point for Sam because it's the first time that he is doing something not for himself in a while. So even the fact that he chose to participate and like ride around in the boat is interesting. And then, like you said, he's getting to know Meg and... uh. After they're searching the lake for the statue, they go to, like, Meg's house. Yeah, she's, got like, out with a flashlight and kind of, like, waves them down or something. Yeah. And so she, she comes to them and she's like, I need your help. My barn is destroyed and my uh-huh. dog was in there and I need help burying my dog. And they're all like... Uh, really are you gonna are you sure and sam's like we gotta help come on let's help lewis really wants to help but he's like i can't make it up the slope it's a very steep hill so they sam's like no we can let's just see if we can help and this as i'm reading this where she's talking about i need help burying the dog they're all like this is kind of like a weird why does she need so much help to bury the dog she's like i already dug a hole she keeps adding like this little bit of information this little bit and like they're just like uh she was kind of sketchy about it and it reminded me as she's telling the story about a comedian that i have very recently found on netflix and i really really like his name's nate bargatze i've told you about him and told you to watch him i I haven't done that yet (laughs) so if you haven't watched any of his stuff i'm gonna give away one of his bits but i think it's still funny anyway He has a bit where he talks about, what do you do when a horse dies? Like, you need help to bury a horse. That's That's a big deal to dispose of a dead horse. And you can't just call your friends up to be like, hey, come help me bury this horse. You would have to trick them to come out to bury the horse. And that is exactly what Meg is doing. Because, in fact, it's not a dead dog. It's a dead horse. <laughs> Would it be ruining this comedian for you if I just he read this book and decided to make a bit about it? <laughs> like, I would not even mind because I enjoyed the humor in this book and I enjoy his humor. So if they are related in any way, I'm fine with it. <laughs> but yeah, not only does she trick them, I think by the end of it, it's just Sam that finishes mm-hmm. helping her. I think 
Because, like, Willie was also on the boat with him and Lewis. And I think Willie helps for a little bit, but then goes back to the boat. Yeah. And they go back to the bed and breakfast. And Sam sticks it out. I think they get chains around the horse's legs, drag it over to the hole, bury the horse, all this stuff. And at some point, what's the, like, in comedy, there's, like, a rule of three or something like that where you do the joke, you do the joke again, you do it again, right? So it's like, I need help burying my dog. It's not a dog, it's a horse. The horse didn't die when the barn collapsed. The horse died last week and I just... (laughs) I just hadn't gotten around to burying him or something. (laughs) Yeah. It was something about like the horse was really stiff or there was something about it. And she was like, the tornado didn't kill the horse. He was already dead. I just hadn't gotten around to bury him yet. And that's like the end of the chapter. And you get an abrupt stop. And it's almost like, and cut to commercial, you know, again, with the sitcom analogy. And then it comes back and it's the next day. But the hard labor of bearing the horse leads into this concept of, one, he likes Meg. Meg is very standoffish. She kind of, like, she does not reveal much about herself. Meg has been hurt in the past, it's clear, you know. Yeah, and she is very quick to, like, shut down if the conversation goes, like, away. She's not comfortable talking or, you know, whatever. It becomes very obvious that now Sam is about 50-50. He's here for the nun. But he's also kind of here for Meg now. And like, he's got nothing else going on with his life. So why not? But the physical labor and like being of use to other people is a new sensation for him. And so he kind of is like, ooh, I kind of want to explore this. And within this, he gets another negative review of himself, which is, I don't know how to do anything. Yeah. He mentions like, he doesn't know how to cook. He doesn't know how to fix things. He doesn't know, you know, all this stuff. And he's like, I'm not a useful, handy person. Yeah, that comes up because while Sister North is gone, they decide, hey, she's got this house that she lives in. She doesn't want to let people come help her. But when she's not here, let's do something really nice. And we're going to just fix up her whole house. And it becomes like a full on renovation. And that's where he's all Mm -hmm. these people are like, oh, I can do windows. I can do the roof. I can do this. And he's like, I don't know how to do anything. Um, And he ends up getting put in charge of the yard. He needs to make grass grow where grass does not exist. It's also important to note that Meg is the one that organizes this. It comes to light that Meg is kind of the closest person to Sister North. Mm -hmm. In fact, Meg is the person who answers the phone for the TV show. So Sam learns that he's actually spoken to Meg when he was calling Mm -hmm. into the show all those times. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when Sam realizes this, because I think as soon as we start to hear Meg talk, it's pretty obvious that like the way she talks, it's very similar to the voice on the other end of the phone. But I honestly, I don't know if Sam recognizes it, or maybe he does, but it is not acknowledged until he talks about it with her much later on in the book. Yeah. But she also runs the radio station for the town. And I think she's the one that like kind of does the full reveal. Yeah, those were reruns. I send them in or, you know, whatever. But anyway, so she's organizing this and it's this weird flux of a lot of people come out to help. They kind of dwindle away. More people come. They dwindle away. It's this pattern of people who are looking for the nun for, you know, their own reasons. I don't know if it's necessarily like a judgment on how selfish their reasons are or how desperate they are. You know, I mean, some people stay as long as they can afford to stay. Some people stay and like they help out with the house a little bit and find out like, hey, whatever positivity that I got out of just being here and being part of this, I feel like I can 
do something now and I can kind of move on. But people like Sam stay. People like Dot stay. I think she said like she comes up here every month or something (laughs) to visit and help out. She kind of is judgmental of the nun tourists. (laughs) At the same time, it's like, well, lady, just because you could afford to be a tourist all the time doesn't make you any much different, you know. But you get these influxes of people and then people who kind of dwindle away. But Willie stays because, well, who knows? Like for the longest time in the story, we have very little understanding of Willie's motivations beyond, well, I'm here now. Uh, he, He puts on a magic show at the restaurant. Yeah, that's towards the end. He does start to sort of reveal it kind of in the same way that everybody else treats Sam where he's kind of like a priest. They're wanting confirmation from him if they're salvageable people. Willie doesn't want to come clean with what he's done, but he makes it clear that like I've done not good things and do you think that I could have redemption even though I've done bad things. Yeah, he he kind of comes at Sam the same way that Lewis did of just like, hypothetically speaking, if yeah. someone were to have, you know, whatever, we come to find out that he may or may not have broken parole basically, like had recently gotten out of prison. We don't get the full reveal of stuff until later on. But what you see in this time where everyone's working on the house is Sam having a real, he's working through his own turmoil and his own trauma through this physical labor. He starts running because Meg is a runner. And so at first he's like, I'm going to run so that I can keep up with her. But she doesn't really like running with me. And I can't run with her for very long. I'm going to work on it on my own. And I think at first he sees working on the yard as also part of like, I'm going to get make inroads with her. But it also turns into, I'm going to do this to prove to myself that I can do this. And yeah. so he starts to take a lot of pride in his work on the yard. He is simultaneously like panicked with it because at one point after he gets all the undergrowth and like dead things uprooted and I mean he works really hard on uprooting things so that they don't grow back and you know all this stuff eventually he gets to the planting seed part and he studies up on it and he you know he tries to learn about like the techniques and everything and for a while the grass doesn't grow and he's convinced that that's going to be a reflection on his soul basically it seems like. But you get this, I don't know if Tableau's right, but it's almost like an extended montage of these people building a community amongst themselves and making these relationships amongst themselves, all brought together because of the nun, but building this up even in her absence. Yeah. The yard, I think, is interesting because I think it's a pretty clear metaphor for Sam himself. Like it starts out dead and full of junk and just bad. And before you can make it not bad, you have to strip it bare and it's got to stay that way for a while like you don't change overnight and I feel like this whole thing is about his metamorphosis from you know starting out as this kind of dick this Mm -hmm. privileged asshole who doesn't appreciate anybody horrible things happen to him and so some of that privilege is knocked back and he has Mm -hmm. to see himself for what's left which is not much and so he has very poor opinion of himself but then he comes here and he's stripping that stuff away and he's not even noticing the positive things that he's doing people are starting to look to him for like leadership and for guidance for themselves and he's like I don't know. Why are you asking me? Yeah, they want his opinion. They value his input. But slowly as he's doing the yard and as he's getting to know people, he's actually like a pretty nice guy and he cares a lot. He wants to help people and he starts to Mm -hmm. realize that he has redeeming qualities too. 
he starts to write those Mm -hmm. things down in his notebook. And this is the part where I was talking earlier about the humor of the book feeling really Mm -hmm. surreal because at probably around this point, those quippy back and forths, they don't happen as often. It was like every other sentence at the beginning of the book. And then at this point, it's a lot more of the drama. Well, the introspection. Yeah. I wouldn't say that things are more realistic at this point, but it's less absurd. At first Mm -hmm. that bothered me because I enjoyed the humor at the beginning so much. But then I was like, well, if you think about it from his mindset of where he was really disconnected from reality, so everything in life was absurd because life itself felt Yeah, everything was a game. Yeah. And so for that to sort of fade away and everything to feel a little bit more realistic makes sense to me with his story arc. So I, I can appreciate the missing humor in that way. Well, and I think that the story that is being told here of that introspection and that soul searching and that kind of reconstructing yourself would come off as so melodramatic without an appropriate counterbalance of humor. You touch on a really good point with that sense of that disconnect or that he's very superficial. Mm -hmm. And that's what all of these silly interactions and things like that are very, like almost cartoonish. Mm -hmm. His life is a joke and then it falls apart and then, you know, he kind of builds it back up. And I'd like to see this as a movie. (laughs) But I also feel like the time for a movie of this kind of story was late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. Like if this was a movie, it would feel like it was out of that era. Okay. Where it was sentimental, but funny, maybe not 90s, maybe early 2000s, early 2010s. But there's a cheesiness to it that like, I feel like a modern audience probably would just be like, are you kidding? (laughs) It could be a Hallmark movie. Oh. This would be a fucking great Hallmark movie. (laughs) Um, Because it has that level of, again, like sentimentality to it. I don't think they would have animals with human dicks in a Hallmark. Hallmark movie. Well, okay, there would be some edits, sure. <laughs> Maybe a Netflix movie, because Netflix is making their own yeah. Christmas movies now, too, you know, because that's kind of what it is, is it feels like- There's murder. This starts out with you freeballing murder. Yes, but do you understand what I'm saying here is that this- <laughs> <laughs> the end result of this movie is that it's a very heartwarming, like, aww, <laughs> vibe. I don't know. I'm just imagining cheesy piano chords over the scene transitions, you know, and stuff like that. But like ironically. Yeah, I guess if you could lean into the silliness and the irony and the very edge of the line absurdity of the book, you could probably get people today to watch it. Would you say that this is like a hallmarky version of Tucker and Dale vs. Evil? I never did watch that. I know you keep <sighs> telling me that I need to, but I, f- I feel like probably yes. Because that's very campy. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. And so there's that campiness to it, the sarcasm to it, the we are self-aware that we are doing these silly gags. Yes. If you lean into that. Sure. Okay. I don't know. Maybe Hallmark needs to come talk to me about this and like, how can we move into that market? Because you know what, Hallmark? I would watch your movies if they were a little bit more like this. <laughs> Add a little bit of murder. You don't need to have the animals with human dicks. <laughs> You can cut that out entirely. That is not necessary in the book. But so, okay, so we've been working on the house. They finished the house. There are rumors brewing, though, throughout all of this. Oh, I, yeah. It's not clear to me, like, how much time is passing here. It seems like they're doing a lot of work, mm-hmm. but I guess with that amount of people, you could do it pretty quick. I think it's like a couple months, though. That's what it seems like. So during all this time, there are rumors swirling about the nun. 
because they keep saying maybe next week or, you know, there's even a point where they're like, she's back. And they all run out there and they're like, oh, no, just kidding. She She's actually not back. So there's some people that are saying that she ran off. She like moved away. There's some people that are uh-huh. saying she's very ill. And some people that are saying yeah. she's dead. She's just gone. And Sam is at a point where he's hearing these rumors and he's like, I don't think he considers leaving even though he's heard them, and I think believes them. I think he doesn't believe that she's coming back at this point. Sam constantly is working towards, I'm pretty sure she's dead. Yeah. Not only has the town set their economy around her, but the guy that owns the restaurant and his brother, who both happen to be Meg's uncles, own basically all of the town. And they're the ones who super pushed all of the economy of the town being centered around the nun. And so it's pretty obvious that their livelihoods are at stake that the nun has to exist and people have to come to her looking for salvation, a miracle, redemption, whatever. We need these people to keep coming through. And Sam is increasingly convinced that Sister North is dead and they're kind of spinning their wheels trying to figure out what they're going to do because they know the town's going to go under. Yeah, and eventually, is it Meg that reveals to him? She says she's dead. She has died. Yeah, she does say that. Um, and so he keeps it a secret. Yeah, she she also reveals this to him like when they, well, yeah, that's when they bone, right? No, like no, they, no, that's later. They, oh, okay, okay. Well, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's Meg, but it could be somebody else. I'm not remembering clearly. I'm pretty sure it's Meg. I think it's Meg because a big chunk of it is that he's keeping that secret Mm -hmm. for her. They're redoing all the house and stuff, and then they're planning for this party for when she comes back. And so they're doing all this party prep, and Sam's like, what are we going to do? Because Sam, he keeps the secret for her, and he's mad at her, too, though, for a little bit. Like, he won't talk to her because he's like, you're lying to these people. It's not right. Because he's built relationships with him and he cares about some of these people now. And so he feels bad that this is happening. And he's like, you don't tell these people, I will tell them. Yeah. And she's like, I'll tell them, I promise, I'll tell them at the party. They're gearing up for the party. And the night before the party, is that when he shows up and they all raid the pantry? I do remember the scene where they're eating the food and then there's the whole upset that like, he came in to make himself some beans and it turns into... <laughs> To like him and Willie and Patrick, but they get to talking. Patrick and Willie are like telling Sam something that they've decided or whatever. They just start taking over, like cooking the beans. They grab something else and they start having some beers and like they're putting everything out. And then I think Meg shows up. Yeah, because Meg's been staying there. And they're like, oh no, we've basically stolen from the nun. And then like Sam goes somewhere and they immediately like throw Sam under the bus and they're just like, Sam took all this stuff and gave it to us. (laughs) Even more funny because Patrick is described as this really big barrel chested. I don't remember if he's described as having a mustache, but in my mind's eye, he has a big old bushy mustache. He used to be in the military. Like pretty high up in the military. Yeah, like an officer. It's implied that he was maybe not the top of the chain, but like pretty close. Close to the top of the chain. Yeah. He's like this big guy that you wouldn't mess with. And he's blubbering, like blaming other people, (laughs) acting like a kid with his hand caught in the cookie jar. 
Oh, you know what? I think Meg tells Sam that Sister North is dead when he leaves the hose on to like soak Mm. the ground for the yard and then like goes and does something and forgets to turn the water off, goes back to the bed and breakfast. He's about to be asleep in bed. He's had the longest day of work he's ever had in his life. Right as he's about to fall asleep, he realizes I left the hose on and he goes back up to the house and that's when Meg is up there and then they get to talking. So, as you alluded to, eventually they go (laughs) to the bone zone and... In Sister North's bed, isn't yeah. it? I think she takes him up and like shows her Sister North's room. It's a twin bed in a very spare room. There's maybe a table and a chair or something. Nothing to it at all. And yeah, they have sex. And then I think they fall asleep. And there's a part of me that's like, really? Two grown adults fall asleep in a twin bed? Like, this isn't college, guys. Like, there's no way this happens. You're both old enough that even sleeping on your own in a twin bed, if it's not a very good mattress, you're going to wake up and be super achy. There's absolutely no way. This is the most unrealistic part of the book for me, is that these two people (laughs) fell asleep in this twin bed. But so when that chapter ends, Meg is like, I have to tell you something. And then it cuts off. So you don't hear the, the, I have to tell you, but she's like, I have to tell you something. It's not only that she's like, I have to tell you something. It's, I have to tell you something. And then she starts laughing. Yes. That's important. I feel like there's this like, he, 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 end scene. Again, another like abrupt stop of like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's the next day. I think they show up, they're ready for the party and- A lot of people are there, a lot of people who didn't help but have shown up because they've heard that this party's happening and that she's coming back. And Sam is observing his beautiful lush lawn getting stepped on and realizing that like, yes, it's going to be damaged, but it's okay. Another great metaphor for himself. Yes, we can bring it back. It's not a lost cause. He is worried, but yeah. But he's like, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen here because all these people are here waiting and they all want to meet her or whatever. And then she shows up because she's not dead. She's alive. (laughs) Not only is she alive. Yeah. (laughs) She has maybe not yet, but is on her way to the bone zone. (laughs) (laughs) Because she fell in love and she's going to leave nunning. She's breaking the habit, Lacey. She's divorcing Jesus to go. Yeah, she's decloistering. Uh... <laughs> and what's really, really, really funny in this scene, which again, like in my mind, in my cinematic imagination of this scene, there's, you know, all these, I guess you could call them like petitioners, right? That are there for like a miracle for redemption, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then there's this group of other nuns that show up. <laughs> They're very serious I feel like as they show up like they kind of come in as one single unit or like a little flock of them you know like they all move together and in my brain anyway it was like you could almost hear them like march 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 (laughs) judgmental nun face you know like we're standing off to the side yeah so sister north shows up and she's all you know like oh thank you all very much for you know I, I would never have asked for anyone to do this but it was it's very fine work on the house and blah 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 I do want you all to know that I think what it was is that she had traveled to, I think, France. But in any case, while she was away, she fell in love and she has decided that she's going to leave being a nun and she's going to get married. Well, no, this is so this is somebody that she was engaged to as a young woman. It was broken off and she became a nun. And now she has reconnected with him 
and they're going to get married. Okay. And then you have the flock of judgmental nuns and they like all kind of come walking up and like the lead one <laughs> kind of steps forward and looks really serious. And then she says something along the lines of go with Christ, sister, you know, like, <laughs> or we're very happy for you. It's a very campy, comical, we look very serious. And then like, Everyone suddenly smiles and like the music trills and we go into a a montage of the party, you know, or whatever. But I I really liked that. I liked the flock of seemingly angry nuns. This is pretty close to Endgame. She announces that she's getting married and she's going to leave. So she's just back Mm -hmm. briefly. She talks to Sam a little bit and basically encourages him. You're good for Meg. I like you for Meg. Well, and it's interesting because he has this kind of moment of here it is. You know, I've been constantly trying to figure out what I'm going to say to her, what I'm going to ask her, you know, what I might say if she asks me a question, you know, whatever. He's been ruminating over that throughout this entire time and he never comes up with an answer. And basically, like, by the time he talks to her, I don't know if it's stated so much in black and white, but he basically reveals that he's like, I think I've kind of figured it out for myself. You know, I've done the work and now I'm maybe not be okay yet, but I'm on that path, you know, very much like the magic was within you the whole time (laughs) kind of scenario. Yeah. But it's good. It's sweet. You know, it's that Hallmark moment. So yeah, he decides to stay. Willie leaves. Sam convinces him, you need to face up to what you did and turn yourself in and do your time and then pursue your stuff because you can be both. You can do both. Yeah. Well, and what was interesting was that Sam tells him that very much in like, I would advise your friend to, you know, like very lawyery. And Willie does get to talk to Sister North. And basically, he tells Sister North, I think this is what I'm going to do. And Sister North is like, hey, you go, dude. You know, even though Sam is not a priest, Sam still ended up kind of filling that role, at least with Willie. And I think like Willie got the confirmation of it through his conversation with Sister North. But yeah, he goes he goes back to base skipping his parole. Um, And that's that's the end, right? Yeah. I don't remember what kind of closure we get for Lewis. I feel like Lewis is left comically in the wind. Oh, you know what it is, though? Lewis does take Sam's advice and fesses up to the fact that he committed fraud against the town. He's going to work on paying, or he wants to pay it back in installments. They're like, no, we want all the money now. And Lewis's next goal is to focus on building the natural beauty of the area as the focus of the tourism for the town. So it's like, come for the nuns, stay for the water skiing. That's right. Come for the nuns, stay for the fun. Stay for the fun. That's right. So that's kind of his thing, but he's still very weird and, you know, like awkwardly obsessed with his his late mother and, you know, all of that. (laughs) And cats. Yeah. I think the restaurant owner, Meg's uncle, is kind of undone in the sense of like revealed that like he was kind of the one really pushing not telling about where sister north was you know and all that and so it's a bit revealed that like not only was he grifting the tourists but he was also kind of grifting the town in that sense but not in like a run him out of town on the rails or like has any kind of really bad I mean, I think it's in that everybody has faults and we should accept people and face the consequences of your actions head on and then forgive and move on because we're all flawed 
free balling. Yeah, we're all just a bunch <laughs> of weirdos anyway. Okay, so I didn't mention this earlier, but so like Dot, the lady that smokes, breast cancer survivor, kind of touched on this. She comes on to Sam a lot. There is a point in time where she basically sexually assaults Sam. Yeah. She's like sneaks into his bed. He comes into his room, leaves the lights off because he's so tired and like falls into bed and she's just there. And she like straddles him, is holding him down. Forces him to be quiet because Lewis comes by and thinks he hears a struggle or something. And is like at the door and there's this whole thing. And I'm just like, are we just not even going to address this? Is she going to get away? And she basically does. And that is, I will say, I did not like that part of the book. Because yeah. I was like, it's not okay because it's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. It happened to a guy. Teehee. Well, but then, so what happens though at the end of that? So she does that. She definitely assaults him it's definitely not okay and as he's talking to her about like i don't want to do this she in the same way that everybody else does opens herself up yeah. to him and starts talking about how she feels about what has happened in her life and she ends up just sobbing and what it comes down to is she's so lonely and lost that she yeah. just she just wants someone there and i think she thinks that's the only way that she could get somebody to be with her is sexually and so i yeah. think he ends up just sleeping literally sleeping next to her that night so she doesn't have to be alone yeah it becomes this i just need like human contact i did not like it again it felt like that concept of where it's like it's funny to sexually assault men because you know men quote unquote can't really be sexually assault. you know you know what i mean if you had reversed and it was a man doing this to a woman and it turned into oh this is the reason and blah 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 it would not that wouldn't be enough yeah to like make that scene okay yeah and so it just i don't know it hits on one of those things where i'm just like aren't we past making these kinds of well this book also came out in like 2003 so wow okay so there you go that skewed me out and i kind of it took me a bit to get back into the story because of it and i also i wonder if we had just had too much emotional maturity happen in the book to that point mm, like it didn't fit anymore yeah, if she had been maybe the first person to really start opening up to him. As far as being there for her in the way that Dot needed or whatever, Sam might not have been at his place in his journey to be that kind to another person. Yeah, he would have taken her up on her offer at the beginning of the story. True. But what I'm saying is that the way that they needed to connect couldn't happen earlier in the story, but the fact that that was how it had to happen took me back out of the story again. Yeah. It was a misstep. I feel like in this story that was otherwise pretty delightful. Yeah. So if I'm going to give a criticism, it would definitely be that part. Like that was just the part that I almost got mad. And like, I think I spent the longest time. I think I went like a couple days before like I continued reading mm. because I was just like, Ugh. whereas before it was like I was reading good chunks of it like every night. Do you have a favorite character? I think Lewis might be my favorite character. I couldn't. So I really like Lewis and I think I would land on Lewis. But I also really liked Patrick because we didn't talk about this much. But he's so rude to everybody. Yeah. He's like the old man that loudly comments the thing that maybe you're thinking in your head, but nobody is rude enough to say out loud. He just does it. Patrick and Lila are definitely, they're caricatures, right? Yes. He's the big boisterous what i'm just saying guy <laughs> and so she's true. the like quieter 
overshadowed. She's a small woman in the sense that she's like constantly just kind of like in his shadow. I don't want to say that she's necessarily meek, but Lila is definitely like the quiet one of the two. And a good chunk of her lines and like dialogue in the story up until you get to like their trauma reveal is her basically just being like, Patrick, yeah. <laughs> how could you? <laughs> you know, just always just like astounded at the audacity of her husband. I think my favorite thing with them is when it's revealed that Patrick is like, maybe not, but definitely believes that he's a good singer. <laughs> he's trying to get other people to get him to sing. Yeah. He keeps talking about how like, oh, people really do like my singing. You know, I sung when I was in the service and like all people really liked it and like, oh no, uh, Willie's having trouble with his magic act. Uh, I guess I could get up and sing to kind of break <laughs> the tension if you really wanted me to. Like he's really wanting people to ask him to, but nobody does. But yeah, I can see that. J.K. Simmons. Patrick oh, yes. should be played by J.K. Simmons. I could see that. He's a little small, though. He's not big and burly like Patrick is. But the but attitude. Again, and voice. I feel like the voice that J.K. Simmons has works really well for Patrick. So to get into our arbitrary judgments, Lacey, why don't you go ahead and give us uh, give us a rating scale? All right. I apologize to any Catholics if this is inaccurate, but the Google tells me that there are 50 Hail Marys in a rosary. So for 50 Hail Marys, ah. what would you rate this book? Out of 50 Hail Marys? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Let's see here. Uh, this is as a bad Catholic. Uh, <laughs> I say that as someone who is baptized Catholic, and that's basically it. I would give this book 45 Hail Marys out of 50. I can't give it more than that because I did have a genuine negative reaction to that whole thing with Dot. So I do think that otherwise, I would have come very close to giving this like a perfect rating for a book because it is exactly what it meant to be. 45 out of 50 Hail Marys for me. I'm a 50. I loved this book. Are you? Wow. It is my favorite that we have read so far. I <laughs> want to recommend this book to everybody. I often will read while I am walking around waiting for my kid to get off the bus. So that's my like outside time of the day. I just walk laps up and down my street. I go out like 20 minutes before I know she's going to get there. It's my little break in the day. And I will carry my book with me like a crazy person. And <laughs> this book, I would say like at least once a lap, I would have to put it down because I was laughing too hard to keep reading and walking at the same time. <laughs> This was 100% my brand of humor. I even liked the melodrama of it. I thought it was like a nice message. I liked the character arc that Sam went through. I really, really enjoyed this one a lot. We might have to go back and check, but I think this is the first time that you've liked something more than I have. Mm, maybe, uh, yeah. And I mean, we both we both very much liked it. It's interesting because I feel like you and I, and we've said this before, we are sci-fi fantasy readers. I firmly believe that I am an escapist reader. I don't want anything to do with my own life or, you know, <laughs> anything that seems like real world or, you know, whatever. I want some element of like, this could not happen in the real world in my stories, you know? Yeah. And while I do not believe that this is a story that could happen in the real world, this is, I think, the closest to, like, contemporary fiction that I've ever, like, wandered. Mm -hmm. 
And I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Going back to our by the cover judgments of this book, we mentioned, we were like, oh man, you know, like this is, and I said I was hooked. I said that I was like, I'm in it for this story. This sounds great. But at the same time, I was kind of wishing that the story that I thought it was going to be was going to be the real thing. I kind of wanted the story that you thought it was going to be to be the real thing. And so there was a bit of that where I was like, oh man, judging this book by its cover, now I'm a little disappointed that it's not what I wanted it to be. But you know, maybe again, it's the process of this game or, you know, whatever it might be that I underestimated how good it was going to be and it over delivered, you know. Yeah. So once again, our system is working. Yep. <laughs> Never in a million years would I have would I have checked this book out. Mm-mm. No. And I mean, yeah. clearly not many people do if the library does not believe that it exists. <laughs> Okay, well, for those of you that did read along, uh, we would love to hear your opinions about this. Uh, Who was your favorite character? What was your favorite zany interaction? What did we absolutely forget to cover that was a sin not to talk about? We want you to tell us about this. So Lacey, can you give everybody our socials uh, so that they know how they can contact us? Yep. So we are at librarygamepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Library Game. Okay. And so for those who like to use future coordinates to find your own book, we do have some new ones for you. And also, uh, we'll give you a quick preview of the title of the book that these coordinates led us to. So our RSSB coordinates for our next episode are 34, 1, 2, and five. Again, that's row, section, shelf, book. Those are our RSSB coordinates. And they led us to a book called The Worms of Bleermouth by Stephen Erickson. A Malazan tale of Bacalan and Corbal brooch. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so excited i don't know what to talk we'll talk about it next time y'all have a good however much amount of time you spend between our podcast episodes i know i will because i'm very excited about this (laughs) okay bye bye